Good morning, everyone. Glad that you were able to be here today. I'm glad that we're all able to be here today and take part in worshiping the Lord, studying His Word together, and uh, being thankful for all the blessings that God has given. If you'll look in your bulletin, you'll see there are several um, activities going on uh, t today and throughout the week and in coming weeks. And one of those that begins today is our marriage seminar that starts at 4.30 this afternoon. It'll run for 10 weeks, I understand, 4.30 to uh, 6 p.m. and uh, each Sunday. And I hope to encourage you to be a part of that. Uh, you might think, well, I've been married a long time. I don't need to be part of that. That may be why you need to be part of that. <laughs> um, or you might be thinking, I'm not married. Well, you may be. You know, you never know. Uh, but it would be a good thing uh, for anyone, I think, and I want to encourage you to do that. And, and in order to encourage participation in that, uh, I told Billy Frazier that I wanted to uh, do some sermons uh, here for a few weeks on that subject of marriage. And I don't know, I've not seen the material that they'll be using for the seminar. I don't know how closely this will parallel what they say. I hope it's not, none of it's contradictory, but uh, it, it isn't uh, the same thing. Uh, and if it is the same thing, it certainly won't be put the same way. But this morning, uh, we're talking about building your marriage God's way. And there are two aspects of that title I want to call your attention to as we start. Number one is building. Building your marriage God's way. When you get ready to build something, you have to be deliberate, don't you? Uh, if you're building a house, you need a blueprint. You need a plan. You need to know what it is you're trying to build. You need to know what the goal is. And the same thing is true when we're talking about marriage. It needs to be thought through. Uh, it needs to be planned. It is amazing how many uh, weddings are unintentional or the marriages are unintentional. I've talked to a lot of couples who are getting married, planning to get married, and they've given a lot of thought to the ceremony, a lot of thought to the honeymoon, a lot of thought to the reception, all of those things. And then when you start asking them about the marriage... They've given no thought to that at all. So we need to be very intentional about planning our marriages and about building them. Marriages may be made in heaven, but as someone said, they are assembled on earth. And they are assembled day by day. Uh, and it is an ongoing task that requires effort. Houses don't get built accidentally or by themselves, but through diligent effort. And in the case of marriage, a marriage is always, always a work in progress. Uh, every day presents its new challenges, its new opportunities, and so every day is our marriage a work in progress. We can never stop working on them if we want to have a strong and lasting marriage. There is not a magic bullet for marriage, as, it, as for so many other things. There's not one key, one secret uh, that anybody can give you. I don't know who wrote this little article, but they hit the nail right on the head it's called the marriage myth. Listen closely. Most people get married believing in a myth. They imagine that marriage is a beautiful box full of all the things that they have longed for. Companionship, sexual fulfillment, intimacy, friendship. The truth is that marriage at the start is an empty box. You must put into something into it before you can take anything out. There is no love in marriage. Love is in people. And people put love into marriage. 
There's no romance in marriage. People have to infuse romance into that marriage. A couple must learn the art and form the habit of giving, loving, serving, and keeping the box full. If you take out more than you put in, then the box will be empty. So we're talking about building a marriage. The second aspect of that title I want you to notice is building a marriage God's way. Building a marriage God's way. As we're going to see, God is the author of marriage, and he knows what will and will not make it work. He gives us guidelines in Scripture. It's up to us to look at those guidelines, and it's up to us to be determined to put them into practice. If we don't, uh, then disaster may result or difficulty at the, the very least. You can only expect a product to work if you follow the manufacturer's instructions. How many times have you gotten some sort of gadget uh, and you thought you knew how to put it together? Uh, you thought you knew how to assemble it, and so you ignored the instructions. I'm talking to the men here. Okay? You ignore the instructions. You think, I, I can figure this out. And so we just dive right in, you know, and then after uh, a lot of fuming and fussing and fretting, we finally realize we need to go back and read the directions. We do that with marriage. We get into it, run into problems, and then we realize we need to look at the directions. Psalms 127 verse 1 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The only sure way to a blessed marriage is if both, both parties are seeking to build it on God. It can't be done unilaterally. It takes both. It takes two people who are determined to build a marriage God's way. God is the creator of marriage, and if we ignore what he says about it, we can't blame him for the outcome. Have you ever noticed that a lot of times when we talk about marriage, it seems like, especially in the church, we talk about when marriages go wrong. We talk about how to fix marriages. We talk about uh, strategies for developing better marriages and so forth. But seldom do we really stop and look at what makes a good marriage in the first place. I was getting ready to teach a, a lesson on this one time a number of years ago, and a man in the congregation who was a dentist came up to me and he said, why don't you just cut to the chase? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, why don't you just go ahead and talk to us about divorce and remarriage and, and all those other things? And I said, let me ask you a question. When you went to dental school, did they start off teaching you how to repair a diseased tooth? And he said, no. And I said, what did they teach you first? And he said, what a healthy tooth is supposed to look like. And I said, well, I think that's what we're doing here. We're trying to talk about what a healthy marriage looks like from God's perspective, not talking about what happens when it goes wrong. So our text for today is Genesis 2, 15 to 25. I hope you'll have your Bible open and be looking at that because it describes the origins of marriage by describing the very first one. And it, by describing the very first one, it says this is the way God ordained it. This is the way God laid it out. This is the way God planned for marriage to be. And the basic principles of marriage are here and the ones that we need to know. So let me just point those out to you briefly. Number one, this text shows that marriage is God's gift to humanity. It is his gift to humanity. Notice in verse 18 that after the creation of the man, he's put in the garden, everything looks great. But God says there's something missing. In verse 18, he said, it is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for the man to be alone. 
We were created to live in relationships with God and with other people. And so marriage is God's gift to us for the closest kind of relationship, that between a husband and wife. So God sees that it's not good for him to be alone, and he said, I'm going to make a helper fit for him. Now, for a long time, the ladies, talking to you now, uh, the ladies have kind of blanched at that word helper, you know, because we're thinking plumber's helper, valet, servant, you know, what are we, what are we talking about there? not about that. There's nothing demeaning about being a helper. In fact, over and over again, the Bible says God is our helper. He is our helper. Psalms 10, verse 14, the psalmist says, you, speaking to God, have been the helper of the fatherless. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Psalms 54 and verse 4, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalms 118, verse 7, the Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. And then what about John 14, verse 16? You remember when Jesus was getting ready to leave the disciples because he knew he was going to the cross the next day? And he said, when I go away, he said, ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, another helper. Jesus himself is our helper and he says, if when I go away, you ask the Father, he will send another helper. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are helpers. There is absolutely nothing demeaning about the concept of being a helper. What's emphasized in Genesis 2.18 is this, a helper who is suitable for the man, a suitable helper. I noticed in the translation John was reading that it said comparable, a helper comparable to him. The King James translation says a, a help meet for him. And, and we've sort of taken that and squashed it together in, into one word, a help meet. And that's really not the way it's intended to be read. It's a helper in the King James language, meet, suitable for him. A helper who corresponds to him. Somebody who's like him. Somebody close enough to him that he can share life with that person. That's what the naming of the animals is all about, verses 19 and 20. God brings all the animals before the man, and he looks at all of them, and he names them. And in the process of doing that, he becomes acutely aware that none of them are quite like him. None of them really correspond to him. None of them can be a life's partner for him. None of them can share the intimacy of life with him. And so verses 19 and 20 leave you with a a little bit of an emptiness there. He saw among all the animals that there was not a helper fit for him. So what did God do? He caused a deep sleep to come upon the man, took a rib from his side, and made a woman and brought her to the man. And when he brought her to the man, what did he say? He said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The Hebrew word for man is ish. Hebrew word for woman, isha. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And when he says this at last is bone of my bones. One of my professors in graduate school once said that was the Hebrew equivalent of saying, oh boy. He's just delighted. He's just overjoyed at what God has brought to him. 
of what God has created for him. This companionship is God's gift to both the man and the woman. And so we ought to value our marriages and we ought to give them the very best of our efforts to make them as strong as we can because God wants to do something good for us in marriage. Principle number two, marriage is for two and the two are a man and a woman. Marriage is for two and the two are a man and a woman. That's how marriage was created to be. That's all it's ever been. It's an exclusive monogamous relationship between two people of opposite sexes. Let me say that again. You see all that in the text. It's an exclusive monogamous relationship of two people of the opposite sexes. A couple of decades ago, when people first started talking about same-sex marriages, most of us wouldn't have ever believed that we'd be where we are today as a society. Most of us would not have ever believed that it would be as accepted as it is, that it would be written into law as it has been. But you know, the problem is, and I don't mean to be unkind about this, but those marriages are not really marriages at all. They can't be, because marriage is what we've seen in Genesis 2. It's between two people of opposite sexes. Just because we say it's a marriage doesn't make it a marriage. Make it a marriage. Just because it's legalized doesn't make it a marriage. Just because it has become socially acceptable does not make it right. You see, here's the problem. We talk about what's legal. We talk about what's socially acceptable. We talk about what people in general think is okay. Here's the question God is concerned about. Is it right? Most folks in the world are not concerned about that. They're really not. They're not concerned about right and wrong. You and I have to be because we live under the cross of Christ. We live under the guidance of God's word. So our question is, is it right? And that's what we have to ask ourselves. Is it right? Listen, you can take a cow and a sparrow and put them together and call them husband and wife. That doesn't make them husband and wife. Just saying it does not make it so. And we've thought in our society that if we say it, all of a sudden it becomes so. That a man can say he's a woman, and he is. And a woman can say he's a uh, man. And she, I'm getting all mixed up on the pronouns. But she is. It, it doesn't work that way. We are what we are, and a marriage is what it is. Claiming that two people of the same sex can form a marriage is a deliberate rejection of how God created us. I know there are all kinds of arguments raised in favor of it, that people of the same sex can be in a loving, committed relationship. But the problem is, it's not right. The problem is, it's not God's plan. And the more accepting we become of it, the more destructive it becomes in our society. Read Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. Paul says, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He goes ahead and he says that same-sex relationships, and a lot of other sins, by the way, that same-sex relationships are the result of rejecting the knowledge of God, the result of hardening our hearts against God, and he calls them dishonorable passions that are contrary to nature, and they are shameless acts. That's what God's word says about that. It's not right. And that's where you and I need to live. 
This isn't really a subject that needs debate. Just go back to the beginning, and it all becomes clear. Number three, marriage is a union between equals. A union between equals. One of the most misunderstood aspects of marriage is that one partner is to be dominant over the other. A lot of folks like to point to Genesis 3.16, which says, uh, after sin has occurred and God is pronouncing the what we call the curses upon the man and the woman and the serpent and, and all of that, he says to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to or for your husband, but he shall rule over you. All right, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And people look at that and say, that's God's plan for marriage. Read it again. That's the fallen state of marriage. That's the fallen state of marriage. Domination, one dominating over another, is not what God planned initially. That's what happened after sin entered into the world. You and I are not supposed to, in our lives, in any area of our lives, to try to pattern ourselves after the fallen state of humanity. We're not supposed to look around and say, okay, this is the way we are now, so this is the way we, we need to be. No, we're supposed to rise above it. And that's what Scripture calls on us to do as husbands and wives, to rise above the fallen state of marriage. Go back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The him becomes them. They are both in God's image. It is not the case that man is in God's image and woman is a pale reflection of that. It is not the case that one is created to be dominant over the other. Notice they are alike, and yet in some ways they are different. Different enough to be fruitful and multiply, as God wants them to do. But alike enough to provide the closest kind of companionship. And most importantly, they are both in God's image. They have different functions within the family. They have different functions within life. But they are equal partners in carrying out God's plan for humanity on earth. Neither is superior to the other. Principle number four. The only legitimate context for sexual relationship is marriage. Marriage is the only legitimate context for a sexual relationship. Chapter 2 and verse 24. You need to memorize that one if you don't already know it. That's the foundational principle text on marriage in the whole Bible. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. You can read all kinds of explanations about what one flesh means. And it, there may be a lot of implications in there about one flesh, but at its most basic level, one flesh is talking about the sexual union. Let me give you an example of that. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says that he who joins himself to a prostitute has become one flesh with her. So when he, he reflects the language of Genesis 2 and verse 24. And the fact that that is referring to the sexual relationship is reinforced by verse 25, the verse we don't usually read in church. The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Why? They didn't have anything to be ashamed of. They were living as God created them to live. 
There was no sin in the world. There was no embarrassment in the world. There was no shame in the world. Their sexual relationship was a good thing. It was God's gift to them. And notice that not anything has been said yet. Not anything has been said yet about the sexual relationship and bearing children. That comes later. But for now, the purpose of sex in marriage that he's talking about is simply enjoyment. And if you don't believe that, go read Proverbs 5.19. I can hear the pages turning. Go read Proverbs 5.19. Take a few minutes and read the Song of Solomon and see that God created the sexual relationship for the enjoyment of humanity. But when, when sex is taken outside the context of marriage, then it becomes problematic. Then it becomes destructive. Why? Because it was never intended for any other context than that between two people who are committed to one another for a lifetime in a marriage relationship. Listen, motor oil is great for your car. Don't pour it over your pancakes. It may look like syrup, but you won't like it. All right? It's got to be used for what it was intended. People today talk about living in a committed relationship. They say our sexual relationship is okay, though we're not married, because it's a committed relationship. My question is, if it's a committed relationship, why don't you make it a marriage? And the reason is because there is something there being held back. It's not a fully committed relationship, and the two people know it. But that's the only legitimate context for a sexual relationship. And then principle number five, marriage is all about commitment. Go back to verse 24 again. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. I mentioned earlier that's the foundational biblical text on marriage. The reason I say that is when Jesus was questioned about marriage, that's the verse he quoted. When Paul wrote to Christians about marriage, that's the verse he quotes in Ephesians 5 and in 1 Corinthians 6. He quotes that verse. He says, we've got to go back to the beginning. We're going back to that healthy tooth again. We're going back and looking to see how it was supposed to be in the very beginning. Uh, that is the foundational text. And it talks about both leaving and holding fast. Some of the older translations says a man leaves his father and and mother and cleaves to his wife. And so we talked about leaving and cleaving. That was, that was uh, nice and poetic. But what does it mean? It means to hold on to. It means to hold fast to. The leaving that Genesis 2.24 talks about is not necessarily physical. You know, in the ancient world, that seldom happened. In the ancient world, it seldom happened that a, a young man who was getting married would actually leave his parents' house. What he would do is... He would be joined in marriage to his wife and bring her into the household. So what's he talking about? What's the leaving? The leaving has to do with the primacy of the relationship. What is the primary relationship? Well, all of his life it may have been his mother and father. But once he gets married, it becomes his wife. Once she gets married, it becomes her husband. No matter whether it's been uh, parents or friends or uh, siblings or whoever in the past, once marriage occurs, it becomes the spouse. It's supposed to be the primary relationship, the, the relationship that gets the priority. So many couples fail to realize that, and they think they can just add one more relationship into their already crowded lives, and they don't leave in that sense. 
and it causes a lot of problems. But it's an important principle. But it's about more than just establishing a new relationship. It's about the permanence of that relationship. He holds fast to his wife. You see, marriage is not an experiment. Marriage is not a temporary arrangement. Rather, it is a lifelong commitment. That's lost on so many folks today. Our culture makes us believe that we can throw away marriages like we do other items that we're done with and just get another one. But they're not listening to Scripture. What did Jesus say? What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And then he quotes Genesis 2, verse 24. But a commitment like that takes two. Can't be done by one. Can't be done unilaterally. You have to have two people who are willing to make that lifetime commitment to one another, to cleave to one another, to be joined to one another, to be permanent with one another. Still, no one should ever enter marriage with any other thought than that this is for life. When I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but remember mine and Linda's wedding ceremony, which would be, what, 104 years ago, I think, this time. <laughs> 56 years ago in June, and uh, uh, I remember it so well. I remember how hot it was outside. It was 105 degrees. It was a balmy West Texas day, 105 degrees. The florist got the bright idea that we needed to turn the air conditioning off in the church building because it would blow the candles. We found out, by the way, afterward it didn't touch them, but he thought it would, so we turned off the air conditioning. We had a building packed with 300 people, 105 degrees outside, and it was about 185 on the inside. All of us guys who had on suits, you know, we were sweating all the way through them. One of, the, one of only a couple of times in my life I've ever sweated through a suit coat, but we all did. And I remember... Uh, Good old brother Dwight Holland did the wedding ceremony, and I had told him beforehand, because Dwight had a tendency to get a little long-winded, no comment. <laughs> he had a tendency to get a little long-winded, I said, Dwight, we don't want that 45-minute version. You know, a five-minute version would be great. He said, now this is a serious occasion. I said, Dwight, we don't want the 45-minute version. He gave it to us anyway. <laughs> and I'll never forget, at one point, looking over at Linda... And she had this most startled look on her face. And I thought, uh-oh, she's going to faint. Because that's what most of us wanted to do, was faint. And I thought that's what she was going to do. And I asked her afterward, I said, were you okay? And she said, yes. But it just struck me at that moment in the ceremony that this really is for life. This is for real. And she said, I just, I just had to stop and think about that for a moment. That's how you got to get into it. That's how you go into it, with the idea that it's going to be for life. Suppose you were about to board an airliner, and the pilot was getting on right ahead of you, wearing a parachute. <laughs> Would you get on? I wouldn't. Because that guy has in mind that this may not work out. And I'm looking for an out. That's not how it works. You don't go into it expecting it not to end well. Did you go into your marriage wearing a parachute? 
you go into your marriage expecting an out. If so, no matter whether you've been married a week or 50 years, take the parachute off. Take it off. Commit yourself to your husband. Commit yourself to your wife. That's the only way to make it work. Marriage has to be built by God, and the only way that's going to happen, the only way that's going to happen is if you've got two people who are both basing their lives on God and are then willing to base their marriage on God. That's the only way that's going to happen. cannot happen with one doing it. Both people need to be doing it. So as, as we close this morning, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you whether you're doing all you can to make your marriage everything God wants it to be. Are you building your marriage God's way? And if you haven't yet started your relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we want to encourage you to do that today. It will not only help your marriage, it will help your whole life. It will change eternity. Let's stand together and sing. Sing them over again to me. Wonderful.